Hi everyone, just wanted to chime in and let you know that this upcoming episode is a bit of a marathon and it includes uh, enormous swathes of 19th century prose faithfully uh, read out by myself. Uh, 18th century prose, Jed. 18th century prose. Oh, you're right. You're right. I thought it was a little more flamboyant than usual. <laughs> yes, it's a, It's instead of a two-minute trailer episode this, this year, we've given you a two-hour trailer episode that involves huge amounts of a Dawes personal journal. I didn't know this was the case Tenches before journal. the recording. Sorry, Tenches. <laughs> what can Tenches uh, journal about uh, the first few years in Sydney and the exploration of uh, the Hawkesbury-Nepean River system? In our opinions, it is extremely interesting and will give you an excellent background into understanding some of the early years and interactions of colonial Sydney on the Hawkesbury-Nepean. But... You might find listening to it somewhat tedious and it certainly won't follow the format that you're used to. So if that doesn't sound like your cup of tea, now would probably be a good time to switch off this episode and jump ahead to our next one. However, if you'd like to give it a go, stay tuned because I personally think this one is a banger. (laughs) All right, on with the show. Hello and welcome to season four of Stories from Sydney. The podcast that delves into Sydney's history the only way that we know how. Haphazardly. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And over the next few months, we'll be bringing you five fresh new stories from Sydney. Uh, This season, our stories will all be uh, in the same theme. We're going to try to incorporate uh, as many Indigenous elements as possible. And we also have found that our stories have tended to hone in on a river system that is very dear to both of our hearts. The Hawkesbury-Nepean, or Jarabin in the local Darug language. So to kick things off, Jed, I've got a few messages from you recently. We've had a long hiatus, and I've heard that you have an off-format, extremely unorthodox possibly very lengthy and experimental episode <laughs> that you're just chomping at the bit to show me. So I'm, I don't know what it's going to be about, but I'm looking forward to it. Yep. In our nine months off season, I've cooked up some completely outrageous new ideas that are guaranteed to polarize our listenership like no episode since that one I did about Wellington. But before we get stuck into that, into what is guaranteed to be a lengthy undertaking... I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which I'm recording this episode, which is the Kootenai people of interior British Columbia. Yes, that's right. We are both no longer based in Australia. And also the people on whose land this story takes place, which is the aforementioned Darug people in what is now Western Sydney. Yeah, and as for me, I am still in Sydney, uh, so at least one of us is. And uh, in my case, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians, which is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. So we've discussed that I'm going to do something a little bit different this episode, Alistair. It all started when I was preparing for what will be my next episode, Mm. and I got to reading What Contentious Famous Journal. Okay. From from cover to cover. (laughs) Exactly. You know a bit about Tench's journal. Would you mind filling in our listeners? 
Uh, yeah. So I actually, I think I have read it a while ago though. And so I don't remember all the details, uh, but what Contench was on the first fleet, he was a naval officer of some ranking, I think relatively high, but not the highest. And he, and a few other, there were only a few, uh, naval officers who really went in for writing extensive journals, uh, I guess with the idea in the back of their minds that they were doing a pretty a novel and uh, exciting new thing and that people might be interested in reading about it afterwards and they might be able to become bestsellers and make a bit of cash, I guess, and a bit of fame. Uh, so I think actually of all the people who did write, uh, what contents probably did the best job. So his uh, journal is uh, very uh, descriptive, very interesting, perceptive, has quite a lot of detail in there. And it's probably, from what I understand, the one that we can learn the most from. Is that roughly accurate? That is absolutely sensational. And I just put in my notes, get Alistair to tell us about Tench's journal. And <laughs> you did a bang up job. The only details I would add is that he, he came to Australia on board the Charlotte and he stayed in Sydney until December 1791. So he left quite early. Mm-hmm. And upon returning to London, he promptly published his observations. So yeah, it was it was a bestseller because he was kind of the first person to spread the word on what was going on yeah, okay. in Australia. And yeah, as you mentioned, his writing was pretty good um, and it's still really interesting and relevant today, especially if you think you're getting an insight into the the mind of the early, early colonial mind in Sydney. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I remember enjoying reading it. And yeah, as you said, I mean, you, you could be on that boat and not be able to write particularly well and people would still probably read it, but <laughs> yeah. he, he does write quite nicely. So it's, it's a pleasure to read. So what I wanted to do this week with your permission, of course, Alistair, <laughs> is describe several of the first trips that the British colonizers made to the Hawkesbury, Nepean River, rivers. Okay, cool. Depends how you look at it. Yeah. In those crucial early years of the colony. Nice. Because not only do they tell us a lot about the river and the land of what is now Western Sydney, but as I say, it's an interesting insight into the minds of the first arrivals and their views of the Eora and Darug people they encountered. Yeah, that sounds great. But, I thought you were going to offer to do a, like, a, a public reading of the of the journal itself. <laughs> that's going to take more than a few hours. <laughs> I, uh, I'm glad that's not the case. <laughs> you've preempted me. That is definitely the case. I would like to tell that story in Tench's own words. I'm sure there's going to be lengthy quotations. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, now that sounds great. I'm excited as well because this is the first time we've done a whole season with a kind of continuous theme. And so there's going to be overlap, but I think that will be good and exciting overlap also i love the story of how uh the one river has two names uh in english because it's kind of funny (laughs) so without further ado i would now like to read a generous handful of passages from what contentious 1793 publication a complete account of the settlement at port jackson wonderful looking forward to it Feel free to interrupt as required. Is this just going to be the rest of the episode? Just you quoting? Or is there also some gen material in there? No, it's just me reading it. But we'll comment on it. (laughs) How much? How much reading are you going to be doing? Uh, There's a fair bit. (laughs) Not all of it, obviously. Just the bits relating to the river. (laughs) Okay. All right. Let's see how it goes. Okay. June 1789. Broken Bay, which was supposed to be completely explored, became again an object of research. On the sixth instance, the governor, accompanied by a large party in two boats, proceeded thither. That's a good one. Here they again wandered over piles of misshapen desolation, contemplating scenes of wild solitude, 
whose unvarying appearance renders them incapable of affording either novelty or gratification. But when they had given over the hope of farther discovery, by pursuing the windings of an inlet, which, from its appearance, was supposed to be a short creek, they suddenly found themselves at the entrance of a fresh water river, up which they proceeded twenty miles in a westerly direction, and would have farther prosecuted their research had not a failure of provisions obliged them to return. This river they described to be of considerable breadth and of great depth, but its banks had hitherto presented nothing better than a counterpoint of rocks and precipices which surround Broken Bay. A second expedition to ascertain its course was undertaken by His Excellency, who now penetrated, measuring by the bed of the river, between 60 and 70 miles, when the farther progress of the boats was stopped by a fall. The water in every part was found to be fresh and good. Of the adjoining country, the opinions of those who had inspected it, of which number I was not, were so various that I shall decline to record them. <laughs> Hang on, so some people liked that and some people didn't? Is that the, the general <laughs> yes. vibe? And he wasn't there, so, so he's like, oh, I'll just really leave them it. all out. <laughs> he, does, he does summarize them here. Some saw a rich and beautiful country, and others were so unfortunate as to discover little else than large tracts of lowland covered with reeds and rank with the inundations of the stream by which they had been recently covered. All parties, however, agreed that the rocky, impenetrable country seen on the first excursion had ended nearly about the place whence the boats had then turned back. Right. Okay. Close to the fall stands a very beautiful hill, which our adventurers mounted, and enjoyed from it an extensive prospect. Potatoes, maize, and garden seeds of various kinds were put into this earth by the governor's order on different parts of Richmond Hill, which yeah. was announced to be its name. The latitude of Richmond Hill, as observed by Captain Hunter, was settled at 33 degrees, 36 minutes south. Here also, the river received the name of Hawkesbury, in honour of the noble lord who bears that title. It's always some guy. Who is the, like, no one knows who that person is, but... I did look him up. He's a meaningless middle-ranking politician from England. (laughs) Wonderful. I'm glad that our beautiful river is still named after him. (laughs) Natives were found on the banks in several parts, many of whom were labouring under the smallpox. They did not attempt to commit hostilities against the boats, but on the contrary, showed every sign of welcome and friendship to the strangers. Okay, so the smallpox, that's interesting. I've I've actually been meaning for a long time to try to do a smallpox episode, but it's quite a difficult subject. But the um, that means so the smallpox had then spread like in advance of uh, the the settlers. Yeah, so smallpox had obviously spread onto off the off the settlers onto like Eora people around Sydney Cove, who had then travelled out to areas on the Nepean and given it to the people out there. So yeah. It's crazy. It reminds me a lot of um, like land degradation in Western New South Wales occurring before any white people had even been there because they just released cattle right. and then they got there and they're like, oh, this stream's buggered. It's like, well, it's probably nice. <laughs> you wouldn't know. You the yeah. yeah, the same thing in the Americas. I think that like the um, Native Americans riding on horses, which is like our quintessential image uh, of the, the the West in America, those horses um, had were were European horses that had preceded the colonizing people and so when they when they met the indigenous people eventually kind of like 
decades or 100 years later they were all riding horses but yeah it's kind of a funny story <laughs> that those horses weren't there until very very recently yeah and it also means that we have no idea about reliable population estimates because so many of the early explorers or invaders or whatever you want to say got out there and were like oh there's hardly any people around but estimates range so broadly i sort of hate to put a number on it but the upper limit might suggest that as many as 90% of the population had had gone by then. And same with culture. People are like, oh, the culture was sort of unsophisticated or limited or whatever. And it's if you think about what our culture might look like if 90 or even 50 or 20% yeah. of people were killed in a pandemic, it would it look dra- drastically different. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the reality that they were sort of confronted with, unbeknownst to them largely. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Or they probably didn't give as much thought as they should have. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. Interesting with the uh, when you started with Broken Bay as well. That I guess because it's got so many different arms, you wouldn't know which one was the, the promising one that was going to lead to a river. No, it's kind of, it's, yeah. it's yeah. They they really have no idea. And if you go up there, you can get a feel for why that is. Um, it probably looks fairly similar to Broken Bay to what it did at, in the 1790s. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty majestic even when you're just going on like the freeway over it, which is the least majestic <laughs> part, I imagine. It's still pretty majestic. Yeah. We'll return to Tench's words. At this period, I was unluckily invested with the command of the outpost at Rose Hill, which prevented me from being in the list of discoverers of the Hawkesbury. Right, Rose Hill being Parramatta, right? Yes. Yeah. Stimulated, however, by a desire of acquiring a further knowledge of the country, on the 26th instant which I believe means the 26th day of the month being uh, June 1789. Mm -hmm. Accompanied by Mr. Arndell, assistant surgeon of the settlement, Mr. Lowe's, surgeon's mate of the Sirius, two Marines and a convict, I left the redoubt at daybreak, pointing our march to a hill distant five miles in a westerly or inland direction, which commands a view of the great chain of mountains called Carmarthen Hills, extending from north to south, farther than the eye can reach. Here we paused, surveying the wild abyss, pondering our voyage. Yeah. Carmarthen Hills' name did not last. We've had gone for the uh, the Blue Mountains instead. So there's one less thing named after some distant <laughs> British landform. Yeah, nice. Blue Mountains is a bit, bit dull, but at least it's not named after some <laughs> guy that no one cares about anymore. <laughs> there's no pleasing you. <laughs> Uh, Tench continues, before us lay the trackless, immeasurable desert in awful silence. At length, after consultation, we determined to steer west and by north by compass, the make of the land in that quarter indicating the existence of a river. We continued to march all day through a country untrodden before by a European foot. Save that a melancholy crow now and then flew croaking overhead, or a kangaroo was seen to bound at a distance. The picture of solitude was complete and undisturbed. Nice. I got some... (laughs) Going on. That's the thing that that's still the same. (laughs) At four o'clock in the afternoon, we halted near a small pond of water where we took up our residence for the night, lighted a fire and prepared to cook our supper. That was to broil over a couple of ramrods, a few slices of salt pork and a crow, which we had shot. Oh, we took one of the poor crows down. I wonder, so do you know much about how they were keeping track of where they were and measuring it? Yeah, he's he's on a compass. 
and they're estimating distance by number of steps. Yeah, because I, I remember reading about that and I was mind like mind blowing to me that they literally like they would be like, well, we were kind of walking that way and I counted how many times, like how many steps I did. So I have a rough idea of how far we went there. It's, it's a tried and true method of surveying and it's surprisingly accurate. You have a very consistent step fall. Right, okay. So you actually, yeah, okay. But I mean, it's hard if you're going through like fairly dense brush because you it would be maybe harder to stay in exactly the same compass line. Yeah. I don't think this was particularly dense brush being the mm-hmm. Cumberland Plain. But yes, I think in, in instances like that, they would put a mark and say what they're up to and then either deviate by like 90 degrees onto a different bearing so that they can keep the calculation yeah. or cut the brush. Like this is a bit of a smaller party, but otherwise they just chop it down, keep okay. going. <laughs> Make sure yeah. like, yeah, straight line it no matter what. At daylight, we renewed our peregrination, Mm. and in an hour after we found ourselves on the banks of a river nearly as broad as the Thames at Putney, (laughs) and apparently of great depth, the current running very slowly in a northerly direction. Vast flocks of wild ducks were swimming in the stream, but after being once fired at, they grew so shy that we could not get near them a second time. Funny, that. (laughs) Nothing is more certain than that the sound of a gun had never before been heard within many miles of this spot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can imagine that would be... Because it would echo a long way, and that would be quite the shock to everyone who heard it. And you've, in fact, been to this spot, Alistair. According to my rudimentary calculations, Yeah, it's not too far from where we embarked onto our pack rafts just down the hill from Lapston <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like the, the lack of current, <laughs> quite like that part of Emu <laughs> Plains where we tried to k- kayak down thinking we would be brought along with the river. And in fact, <laughs> the people walking on the shore were much faster than us. <laughs> that I suspect the current was slightly faster in Tench's day because they hadn't put a weir in at Penrith, yeah. but not that much faster because... That was a natural fording point, so the the lake yeah. on the Nepean would have been there to some extent already. That weir really killed us. Yeah, and let's not talk about the weir. <laughs> Wasn't there in 1789? Yeah. We proceeded upwards by a slow pace through reeds, thickets, and a thousand other obstacles which impeded our progress over coarse, sandy ground, which had been recently inundated, though full 40 feet above the present level of the river. Right. So this is, there's previously been a massive flood, right? Is what is Yeah. And if yeah. you've spent any time on the Hawkesbury Nepean, you can picture it exactly. There's like all this debris in the trees. Yeah. 10, 15, 20 meters above the water level. Yeah. Um, it's cool to think that, yeah, he witnessed the exact same thing. Yeah. Would have had maybe a few less tires and uh, you know, <laughs> streamers. <laughs> Uh, but nicer <laughs> still yeah even, even with natural stuff you would be able to see that level uh, traces of the natives appeared at every step sometimes in their hunting huts which consist of nothing more than a large piece of bark bent in the middle and open at both ends exactly resembling two cards set up to form an acute angle sometimes in marks on trees which they had climbed or in squirrel traps or which surprised us more from being new in decoys for the purpose of ensnaring birds. These are formed of underwood and reeds, long and narrow, shaped like a mound raised over a grave, with a small aperture at one end for admission of the prey and a grate made of sticks at the other. The bird enters at the aperture, seeing before him the light of the grate between the bars of which he vainly endeavours to thrust himself until taken. 
Most of these decoys were full of feathers, chiefly those of quails, which showed their utility. We also met with two old damaged canoes hauled up on the beach, which differed in no wise from those found on the sea coast. Really cool. That was a great description of a, of a bird trap. Yeah, and this is why I ended up deciding to just wholesale quote him because there's so many interesting bits. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's interesting as well with the canoes. I would have thought they'd be different style uh, canoes from the ones that were used in the harbour. And... Well, it's Tetentious Eye. I mean, he's yeah. a Navy man, but he's also an, an ignorant a, colonist. Just a guy. <laughs> like... yeah. uh, he, and he has a little footnote here for those who are wondering. A squirrel trap is a cavity of considerable depth formed by art in the body of a tree. When the Indians in their hunting parties set fire to the surrounding country, which is a very common custom, the squirrels, opossums, and other animals who live in trees flee for refuge into these holes, whence they are easily dislodged and taken. The natives always pitch on a part of a tree for this purpose, which has been perforated by a worm, which indicates that the wood is in an unsound state and will readily yield to their efforts. If the rudeness and imperfection of the tools with which they work to be considered, it must be confessed to be an operation of great toil and difficulty. Yeah, so he's done some observation. I wonder like, how much he saw that being made or how he knew all of those details. But interesting. I suspect, and I could be wildly wrong here, that a lot of those were semi-natural hollows that the indigenous people have expanded so, on yeah. to, to to serve a specific purpose. As he says, the to- tools he knows they had, it would have been absurdly difficult. And if there's anything we know about indigenous hunting and food gathering practices, it's that they were very clever in their approach and did not go for things that were unnecessarily right. difficult. choose things that, yeah, ridiculously <laughs> yeah. time-consuming and un- unnecessary, yeah. Cool. And the stuff about how they climbed up uh, that, and the notch holes in the trees. Uh, I've got a little bit of uh, content about that in my next episode, so I'm excited to hear you mention it. Mm-hmm. A clue. Excellent. Having remained out three days, we returned to our quarters at Rose Hill with the pleasing intelligence of our discovery. The country we had passed through was tolerably plain and little encumbered with underwood, except near the riverside. It is entirely covered with the same sort of trees as grows near Sydney. <laughs> And in some places, grass springs up luxuriantly. Other places are quite bare of it. The soil is various, in many parts a stiff and clay covered with small pebbles, in other parts of a soft loamy nature. But invariably, in every part near the river, it is a coarse sterile sand. Our observations on it, particularly mine from carrying the compass by which we steered, were not so numerous as might have been wished. But certainly, if the qualities of it be as to deserve future cultivation, no impediment of surface but that of cutting down and burning the trees exists to prevent its being tilled. To this river, the governor gave the name of Nepean. The distance of the part of the river which we first hit upon from the seacoast is about 39 miles in a direct line almost due west. Right. And the name Nepean, given for Evan Nepean, who's another middling English politician <laughs> mm. and a personal friend of the governor's. Of course. <laughs> um, right. And at this point, so they've got two rivers, two river names now, um, Nepean and Hawkesbury. I think there was like some suspicion that they might actually meet up and be one in the same river, but they just weren't sure. Is that right? I think at this point, they haven't got to that suspicion. Um, so they've just given them two separate names, but 
but yes, they've got the Nepean, which they've discovered at a, around like Emu Plains, Penrith kind of area. Uh huh. And then and the Hawkesbury, which they've gone up from Broken Bay as far as uh, Richmond. Richmond. Right. So actually, they're they're not that far from each other. Like they're, no, they're quite, pretty close quite to close. me. Yeah. Uh, it's as far as we intended to raft. In fact, exactly. We were going to raft the missing, <laughs> the missing link, the missing bit. Yeah, I'm sure we'll cover that more in the coming episodes. I really like that that passage there because he's described. He answers your question about um, cutting a line. They didn't have to. It was all grassland, and there's also all these other little clues. Like he talks about different types of soil, which is interesting, and how some places the grass springs up luxuriantly and other places have none, which apart from soil quality, I suspect is to do with the burning regime Mm -hmm. whereby relatively recently burned areas are going to have really good grass regrowth, which um, Daru people probably use to, uh, in part, to lure kangaroos to the area for hunting. So, yeah, there's all these sort of little things he's saying that obviously doesn't really have any intention about that are really awesome clues to what was going on. Yeah, you kind of have to glean from the comments and the further meaning. He's not explicitly actually telling you the information you want to know about Aboriginal land practices and uh, what the... <laughs> but you're kind of like, oh, he seems to say these things, which would kind of indicate that this must have been going on. Hmm. So that's the end of the first entry that I will read. And the next one takes place in December 1789. So that's six months later. Okay. So I'm um, sorry, just quickly, how... When did the when did the Hawkesbury uh, navigation happen, and then when did the Nepean little stroll happen? That is a good question. The Nepean stroll was in June seventeen eighty nine. Yeah, they were, sorry. So they both occurred in June seventeen eighty nine. Right. The so- Broken Bay exhibition, I believe, was the sixth of the month, and he went on the twenty sixth. Basically, it it reads that Tench was caught up in Rose Hill and didn't want to be there. And the moment something interesting is going on, yeah, yeah, he pissed off to name a river after a distant after some guy. (laughs) Everyone else is naming rivers after my politicians, and I'm not. I'm going to get out there, even if it's the same river. I'll give it a different name. (laughs) Yes. Okay, sorry. Yeah, so within a year and a half of the first fleet uh, landing in uh, what's now Sydney Cove, they're, they're really interested in exploring these areas, right? And I think especially because of the freshwater and because, as you can tell, even from like the short amount of attention the tench gives it, the the quality of the soil, like the the farming potential, is really what they're quite interested. Absolutely, in. yes. Yeah. That's exactly what they're after. You heard that Governor Philip on his expedition up there threw some seed out. Mm, so they've yeah, yeah. literally planted potatoes when they'd never been there before. As you may recall, the first couple of years of the colony were very dire for food supply, and they were like surprised that they couldn't readily grow European crops in Sydney. Yeah. So yeah, they're looking for farmland, and they're as you've as you've heard, they're pretty sure that they might have found it. Yeah. So December seventeen eighty nine, at the request of His Excellency. Lieutenant Dawes of the Marines, who you may recall, Alistair, from your episode about Dawes in yes, season one. Yes, yeah, yeah. He uh, was, I think he was actually quite good friends with uh, Tench, but he was a man of letters who was very interested in the Aboriginal language of the the local area around Sydney. And then mm. also, um, I think he was on quite a few of these expeditions as well. Mm. Accompanied by Lieutenant Johnson and Mr. Lowe's, about this time undertook the attempt to cross the Nepean River and to penetrate to the Carmarthen Mountains. 
Having discovered a ford in the river, they passed it and proceeded in a westerly direction. But they found the country so rugged and the difficulty of walking so excessive that in three days they were able to penetrate only 15 miles and were therefore obliged to relinquish their object. This party, at the time they turned back, were farther inland than any other persons ever were before or since, being 54 miles in a direct line from the sea coast when on the summit of Mount Twiss, a hill so named by them and which bounded their peregrination. There's lots of peregrinations going on, aren't there? <laughs> There's a lot. There's a lot. Um, and aside from his absolutely ludicrous claim that no one has ever been further inland than that, uh, speaks to what he thought of the Durham people. As him as yes. <laughs> aside from that, it's super fascinating because this is the first attempt across the Blue Mountains, which became a huge source of consternation in the colony for about 10 years. And it was 25 years after this before the road opened across the mountains that we explored a little bit in the episode about the Cox's Road. Yeah, yeah, right. But this this seems like it was a pretty half-hearted attempt. Well, I don't think it was half-hearted. They just went as far as they could in three days. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And the ford mentioned is obviously Emu Ford, which is the original crossing point of the Nepean, and it's still in use today, um, sort of. There's a train line and the Great Western Highway both cross the river there. But as you will recall from our pack rafting trip, the freeway crosses a few kilometers further south. Yes. Yep. I remember going under all of those bridges. Yes, you did. And the fort itself is still partly visible just downstream of the Penrith Weir, which sticks in my mind as the place where you inadvertently punctured the pack raft I generously lent you. <laughs> yeah, we didn't go much further than that. Because you, you'd also, <laughs> in, in your infinite wisdom, decided that this one time you probably didn't need to bring the, uh, the uh, puncture repair kit because you'd never needed it before. <laughs> Classic mistake. Um, <laughs> Mount Twiss, I found out, is still thusly named. And yeah, yeah, totally undeveloped. It's yeah, okay, uh, never heard of just it. a random hill, uh, 12 miles west-northwest from Emu Ford, deep in the Blue Mountains National Park. And the nearest inhabited spot that you haven't heard of is Linden, which is a station on the Blue Mountains line. Okay, nice. August 1790. So we've jumped forward nine months. Mm-hmm. In the beginning of this month, in company with Mr. Dawes and Mr. Worgan, late surgeon of the Sirius... I undertook an expedition to the southward and westward of Rose Hill, where the country had never been explored. We remained out seven days and penetrated to a considerable distance in a south-southwest direction, bounding our course at a remarkable hill, to which, from its conical shape, we gave the name of Pyramid Hill. Except the discovery of a river, which is unquestionably the Nepean near its source, to which we gave the name of the Worgan, in honour of one of our party, Nothing very interesting was remarked. Towards the end of the month, we made a second excursion to the northwest of Rose Hill, when we again fell in with the Nepean, and traced it to the spot where it had been first discovered by the party of which I was a member, 14 months before, examining the country as we went along. Little doubt now subsisted that the Hawkesbury and Nepean were one river. Right. So they've walked back a little bit of that missing link. What he's done there is he's arrived in the middle of the missing link and walked upstream to where he was right. at Emu Plains. Uh, we undertook a third expedition soon after to Broken Bay, which place we found had not been exaggerated in description, whether its capacious harbour or its desolate, incultivable shores be considered. 
On all these excursions, we brought away in small bags as many specimens of the soil of the country we had passed through as could be conveniently carried, in order that by analysis its qualities might be ascertained. Yeah, yeah, really. I mean, it's just really striking how how much cultivation is forefront in their minds. You know, like they they judge all mm. landscapes on how easy it would be to turn into a farm. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Literally, <laughs> but yeah, but I mean that is also like, uh, yeah, that the plan is for it to be a penal colony that turns into a um, a self sustaining settlement, right? Rather than just letting everyone die, I guess, or or mm. abandoning it. So they do need to to find a way of uh, of cultivating food, and I guess the only way they know how, uh, which is yeah, yeah, growing green. Exactly. Now we skip forward to April seventeen ninety one. So that's four more months later. And this is where things really start to kick off, Alistair. Sorry, which month is this? Which year? Sorry. April 1791. 1791, right, okay. Mm-hmm. From among my numerous travelling journals into the interior parts of the country, I select the following to present to the reader as equally important in their object and more amusing in their detail than any other. So I can see that Tench is being a bit discerning about what's coming through into this, into this tome. So I don't need to be. (laughs) In April 1791, an expedition was undertaken in order to ascertain whether or not the Hawkesbury and the Nepean were the same river. With this view, we proposed to fall in a little above Richmond Hill and trace down to it, and if the weather should prove fine to cross at the ford and go a short distance westward, then to repass the river and trace it upward until we should either arrive at some spot which we knew to be the Nepean or should determine by its course that the Hawkesbury was a different stream. So here Tench makes a suggestion that we look at a map for the situation of the place. And I do have a copy of the map, which I will share on our social media pages. Um, But it's not entirely clear where he's referring to. Manning Clark, who's a historian who wrote a six-volume history of Australia in 1962, guesses that where Richmond Hill is, and Tench is talking about, is in uh, what we now call Hawkesbury Heights, sort of halfway between Richmond and Penrith. Mm-hmm. But from looking at the map, I would have assumed that where he is is in North Richmond, um, nearer to Richmond. I guess the name mm-hmm. makes me probably lean that way. But either way, um, you're looking for a prominent hill on the far side of the Hawkesbury Nepean, somewhere between Penrith and Richmond. Yeah. Our party was strong and numerous. It consisted of 21 persons. The governor, Mr. Collins and his servant, Mr. White, Mr. Dawes, the author, three gamekeepers, two sergeants, eight privates, and our friends, Colby and Bolladery. Mm-hmm. These last two were volunteers on the occasion, on being assured that we should not stay out many days and that we should carry plenty of provisions. Bannelon wished to go, but his wife would not permit it. Colby, on the other hand, would listen to no objections. He only stipulated, with great care and consideration, that during his absence, his wife and child should remain at Sydney under our protection and be supplied with provisions. Now, I read this first and was like, oh, that's that's great. Some of the Eora people wanted to join them as volunteers. And then I found out that uh, Colby and Balladery had been kidnapped and effectively kept in, like, like the way you keep fancy people prisoner. So they were prisoners, but they weren't. They were tried. They were treating them as well as they could while making right. sure they didn't leave. You let them sit at fancy dinner tables and stuff, but it's quite clear to them they're not allowed to leave. Yes. Yeah. So to call them volunteers on this occasion is, I would say, 
intentionally euphemistic. Yeah. It's also um, interesting the um, their insistence that they not like stay for too long or that if they go, like they'll be back within a few days. I, I believe I've, I've read about this a bit elsewhere and that this would have been quite consciously for them. They would have been very, they would have been very conscious of the fact that they were going onto land that wasn't uh, belonging to their, their group. And that that's not kind of the done thing to just go tramping suddenly into other people's land. Um, <laughs> yeah, and so absolutely. I think they would have been a bit apprehensive about that and knowing that that like, yeah, they were breaking quite a lot of uh, cultural norms there. Mm. But before we set out, let me describe our equipment and try to convey to those who have rolled along on turnpike roads only an account of those preparations which are required in traversing the wilderness. I know, that's so good. (laughs) (laughs) On turnpike roads only. Those turnpike roads. Mm, They know nothing of our experience. Traversing the wilderness, no. Every man, the governor excepted, carried his own knapsack, which contained provisions for ten days. If to this be added a gun, a blanket, and a canteen, the weight will fall nothing short of forty pounds. Slung to the knapsack are the cooking kettle and the hatchet, with which the wood to kindle the nightly fire and build the nightly hut is to be cut down. Garbed to drag through morasses, tear through thickets, Ford rivers and scale rocks are autumnal heroes who annually seek the hills in pursuit of grouse and black game afford but an imperfect representation of the picture. <laughs> that he was calling himself a hero, but actually he was comparing himself favorably with the heroes. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's so much. I love it. I would love to be able to write like that. It's out of control. <laughs> Thus encumbered, the march begins at sunrise and with occasional halts continues until about an hour and a half before sunset. It is necessary to stop thus early to prepare for passing the night, for toil here ends not with the march. Instead of the cheering blaze, the welcoming landlord and the long bill of fare, the traveller has now to collect his fuel, to erect his wigwam, to fetch water and to broil his morsel of salt pork, Let him then lie down, and, if it be summer, try whether the effect of fatigue is sufficiently powerful to overcome the bites and stings of the myriads of sandflies and mosquito which buzz around him. There you go. This is a classic, like, self-aggrandizing section, isn't it? Like, you guys think you've had a hard time hunting grouse? (laughs) It's nothing. (laughs) I just love that that's his only cultural reference for experiencing, like, the wilderness. yeah. Um, I also find it really interesting that they build a new wooden hut every night. (laughs) Yeah, that's quite a lot, isn't it? It's crazy. Yeah. Presumably for the governor, who also won't carry his own knapsack. It's just nothing less. (laughs) Full timber-framed house for me every night. Okay, here we begin. Now, he's set the scene. Monday, April 11th, 1791. At 20 minutes before 7 o'clock, We started from the governor's house at Rose Hill and steered for a short time nearly in a northeast direction, after which we turned to north, 34 degrees west, and steadily pursued that course until a quarter before four o'clock when we halted for the night. The country for the first two miles while we walked to the northeast was good, full of grass and without rock or underwood. Afterwards, it grew very bad, being full of steep barren rocks over which we were compelled to clamber for seven miles, 
when it changed to a plain country, apparently very sterile, and with little grass in it, which rendered walking easy. Our fatigue in the morning had, however, been so oppressive that one of the party knocked up, and had not a soldier, as strong as a pack horse, undertaken to carry his knapsack in addition to his own, we must either have sent him back or have stopped at a place for the night which did not afford water. Our two natives carried each his pack, but its weight was inconsiderable, most of their provisions being in the knapsacks of the soldiers and gamekeepers. I suspect that was the choice of the soldiers and gamekeepers. <laughs> we expected to have derived from them much information relating to the country, as no one doubted that they were acquainted with every part of it between the sea coast and the river Hawkesbury. We hoped also to have witnessed their manner of living in the woods and the resources they rely upon in their journeys. Nothing, however, of this sort had yet occurred, except their examining some trees to see if they could discover on the bark any marks of the claws of squirrels and opossums, which they said would show whether any of the animals were hidden among the leaves and branches. They walked stoutly, appeared but little fatigued, and maintained their spirits admirably, laughing to excess when any of us either tripped or stumbled, misfortunes which much seldomer fell to their lot than to ours. Classic joke. And there's an aside here that you might find interesting, Alistair. Mm. Our method on these expeditions was to steer by compass, noting the different courses as we proceeded and counting the number of paces, of which 2,200 on good ground were allowed to be a mile. At night, when we halted, all these courses were separately cast up and worked by a traverse table in the manner of a ship's reckoning is kept, so that by observing this precaution, we always knew exactly where we were and how far from home, an unspeakable advantage in a new country, where one hill and one tree is so alike another that fatal wanderings would ensue without it. This arduous task was always allotted to Mr. Dawes, who, from habit and superior skill, performed it almost without a stop or an interruption of conversation. To any other man on such terms, it would have been impracticable. Yeah, I, I've read that passage before, I think, which is why it was in my mind. It just blows my mind that you could walk along having a conversation, but also like keeping perfect count of exactly how many steps you'd taken and in what directions so that you could, at the end of the day, draw it up on a map and say exactly where you were. Yeah, well... You know, practicing the brain muscles. We don't. Yeah, we don't need to do that. So these skills go out the window. Suggest a a wild trip where we try to do the same thing on a very small scale. See how close we can get to (laughs) shoot some grouse. Yeah, maybe without the grouse. I should say before I start this one. After the aside, we're we're back to talking about Colby and Balladery, the two Mm -hmm. Eora men that are accompanying them. Yeah. At a very short distance from Rose Hill, we found that they were in a country unbeknown to them, so that the farther they went, the more dependent on us they became, being absolute strangers inland. To convey to their understandings the intention of our journey was impossible. For perhaps no words could unfold to an Indian the motives of curiosity which induce men to encounter labour, fatigue and pain, when they might remain in repose at home with a sufficiency of food. We asked yeah. Colby the name of the people that live in land, and he called them Buraburongal, and said they were bad. Whence we conjectured that they sometimes war with those on the seacoast, by whom they were undoubtedly driven up the country from the fishing ground, that it might not be overstocked. The weaker here, as in every other country, giving way to the stronger. 
Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because at first he's like doing the classic, like, oh, they're just a bit lazy, aren't they? They're like just sitting around. They have no idea of like, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to go and check something else out? But then he does seem to acknowledge like, or maybe actually there's a lot more culturally going on here. And these are like groups that are separate from one another. And you don't just go like charging onto their land without an invitation or any kind of communication of it. Um, yeah, I'm not sure he's got quite that far, but he's definitely realized that they've the, never been the, here. And there is a difference. Why? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. because yeah, he does say it. Well, initially, I just assumed that they'd be like perfectly familiar with every single place between the coast and the Hawkesbury, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and then it becomes clear that they're not. We asked how they lived. He said on birds and animals, having no fish. Mm. Their laziness appeared strongly when we halted for they refused to draw water or to cleave wood to make a fire. But as soon as it was kindled, as having first well stuffed themselves, they lay down before it and fell asleep. About an hour after sunset, as we were chatting by the fireside and preparing to go to rest, we heard voices at a little distance in the wood. Our natives caught the sound instantaneously and bidding us to be silent, listened attentively to the quarter whence it had proceeded. In a few minutes, we heard the voices plainly and wishing exceedingly to open a communication with this tribe, we begged our natives to call to them and bid them to come to us, to assure them of good treatment and that they should have something given them to eat. Colby no longer hesitated, but gave them the signal of invitation in a loud hollow cry. After some whooping and shouting on both sides, a man with a lighted stick in his hand advanced near enough to converse with us. The first words which we could distinctly understand were, I am Colby of the tribe of Cadigal. The stranger replied, I am Barawan of the tribe of Baruburongrel. Baladari informed him also of his name and that we were white men and friends who would give him something to eat. Still, he seemed irresolute. Colby therefore advanced to him, took him by the hand and led him to us. By the light of the moon, we were introduced to this gentleman, all our names being repeated in form by our two masters of the ceremonies who said that we were Englishmen and Budyari good, that we came from the seacoast and that we were travelling inland. Barawan seemed to be a man about 30 years old, differing in no respect from his countrymen with whom we were acquainted. He came to us unarmed, having left his spears at a little distance. After a long conversation with his countrymen and having received some provisions, he departed highly satisfied. <laughs> if you say so. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay, interesting. For some I had... I thought I had a memory that the communication was linguistically uh, a little more difficult between the like people from the coast and the people from around the Nepean area. But it seems from that account that it wasn't, that they could understand each other perfectly. So the contemporary consideration is that Darug and Eora are the different dialects of the same language yeah. from Tench's accounts. We get much more into this later on. Okay. Um, they have a lot of separate words, but it's mutually intelligible. So yes. from my European cool. mind, it's sort of like Portuguese and Spanish people can often talk to one another in their own language while understanding the language of the person speaking to them. Yeah, or some, or some, yeah, something like that, right? Where, yeah, where there's there's times when it's hard to understand. Like it's kind of like me and my American wife, you know. Sometimes I understand her, and sometimes <laughs> sometimes you just shake your head in confusion. Like, no idea what you're talking. Smile about. Smile and nod. <laughs> yeah. Okay. 
um it must be yeah there must be a different passage where they talk about that i also there was like just an earlier section where like it's just so uh quintessential of these european accounts of different cultures where they just like drop in like oh and of course they're just like hopelessly lazy and then just like continue on with their account like just just (laughs) continuously just dropping these like huge insults throughout um and it seemed like that was also potentially an interest like where you have to read between the lines say like why were they completely refusing to touch the water and the land and things like that and again there might have been a lot more going on there than like just they're just really lazy but there might it might have been some kind of insight to be had they're evidently not really lazy because they've come on this this outrageously arduous wilderness traverse they're engaging with the um darug people at at the request of the the pretentious party you know like (laughs) they're they're putting themselves out there in a serious way yeah um yeah yeah, so i wonder why like they they didn't want to touch the water or or, or yeah it's a really really good point yeah so i don't know i I just feel like it's so hard to let all that stuff slide and just be like oh yeah of course we were just like just calling people like awfully lazy and like pathetic and blah blah throughout also referring to them as indians like it's it's 1789 sorry it's 1791 like we've established that we're not in the West Indies, <laughs> that the West Indies aren't India, and that you're nowhere near either of those places. places like, yeah. it's, there's no possible explanation for why you would refer to them as Indians. And he just swaps. It's just like, oh, natives, Indians. Yeah. Yeah, very strange term, the Indians thing, isn't it? Okay, next day, Tuesday, April 12th, 1791. Started this morning at half past six o'clock, and in two hours reached the river. The whole of the country we passed was poor, and the soil within a mile of the river changed to a coarse, deep sand, which I have invariably found to compose its banks in every part without exception that I ever saw. The stream at this place is about 350 feet wide, the water pure and excellent to the taste. The banks are about 20 feet high and covered with trees, many of which have been evidently bent by the forces of the current in the direction which it runs, and some of them contained rubbish and driftwood in their branches Mm. at least 45 feet above the level of the stream. We saw many ducks and killed one, which Colby swam for. Not lazy. (laughs) No new production among the shrubs growing here was found. We were acquainted with them all. Our natives had evidently never seen this river before. They stared at it with surprise and talked to each other. Their total ignorance of the country and of the direction in which they had walked appeared when they were asked which way Rose Hill lay, for they pointed almost oppositely to it. Of our compass, they had taken earlier notice and had talked much to each other about it. They comprehended its use and called it Namaro, literally to see the way. A more significant or expressive term cannot be found. Yeah, I was like, the, it's interesting the terms that the aboriginals would use for different kind of things they'd never seen before so for like the ships on the harbor and the compasses and things like that they often had really descriptive and interesting terms for it Mm. i also call bullshit on that claim that they had no idea where they'd been or what direction rose hill was like just anyone who's grown up with the sun rising and setting above them and navigating (laughs) off that i just they're pulling his leg for sure. So like they pointed almost exactly opposite to it. It's like, mate, come on. <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's probably a good point. Uh, I think you'd be pretty connected, even if you didn't know the land. Which I mean, probably they had enough signs, and I do believe it 
to be very plausible that they didn't know that land around there very well. Uh, but yes, they probably yeah, still that knew bit which way they were but going. not knowing yeah. which east from west, like, come on. <laughs> Supposing ourselves to be higher on the stream than Richmond Hill, so that's upstream of Richmond, yeah. we agreed to trace downward or to the right hand. In tracing, we kept as close to the banks of the river as in the innumerable impediments to walking which grow upon it would allow. We found the country low and swampy, came to a native fireplace, at which were some small fish bones. Soon after, we saw a native, but he ran away immediately. Having walked nearly three miles, we were stopped by a creek which we could neither ford or fall a tree across. We were therefore obliged to coast it in hope of finding a passing place or to reach its head. At four o'clock, we halted for the night on the bank of the creek. Our natives continued to hold out stoutly. The hindrances to walking by the riverside, which plagued and entangled us so much, seemed not to be heeded by them, and they wound through them with ease. But to us, they were intolerably tiresome. Our perplexities afforded them an inexhaustible fund of merriment and derision. Did the sufferer, stung at once with nettles and ridicule, and shaken nigh to death by his fall, use any angry expression to them, they retorted in a moment by calling him every opprobrious name which their language affords. <laughs> Balladery yeah. destroyed a native hut today very wantonly before we could prevent him. On being asked why he did so, he answered that the inhabitants inland were bad, though no longer since then last night, when Barrowan had departed, they were loud in their praise. But now they had reverted to their first opinion. So fickle and transient are their motives of love and hatred. And here he has a note about uh, every appropriate name. He oh, says, yeah. their general favorite term of reproach is gonenpata, which signifies an eater of human excrement. <laughs> <laughs> Our language would admit a <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, and then he follows. Our language would admit a very concise and familiar translation. <laughs> they have, besides this, innumerable others, which they often salute their enemies with. Ah, <laughs> uh, nice. Yeah, those are priceless uh, observations. Um, yeah, the the denseness of the forest is also. I think along the riverbank, it was quite thick rainforest um, uh, along a lot of the Hawkesbury, which would have been in stark contrast to those grasslands that you were otherwise describing. Yeah. In the Cumberland Plain. Yeah. Okay. Wednesday, April 13th, 1791. We did not set out this morning until past seven o'clock when we continued to trace the creek. The country which we passed through yesterday was good and desirable to what was now presented to us. It was in general high and universally rocky. Toiling our uncouth way, we mounted a hill and surveying the contiguous country. To the northward and eastward, the ground was still higher than we were upon, but in a southwest direction we saw about four miles. The view consisted of nothing but trees growing on precipices. Not an acre of it could be cultivated. Saw a tree on fire here and several other vestiges of the natives. To comprehend the reasons which induce an Indian to perform many of the offices of life is difficult. To pronounce that which could lead him to wander amidst these dreary wilds baffles penetration. About two o'clock, we reached the head of the creek, passed it, and scrambled with infinite toil and difficulty to the top of a neighbouring mountain, whence we saw the adjacent country in almost every direction for many miles. I record with regret that this extended view presented not a single gleam of change which could encourage hope or stimulate industry to attempt its culture. We had, however, 
the satisfaction to discover plainly the object of our pursuit. Richmond Hill, distant about eight miles, in a contrary direction from what we had been proceeding upon. It was readily known to those who had been up the Hawkesbury in the boats by a remarkable cleft or notch which distinguishes it. It was now determined that we should go back to the head of the creek and pass the night there, and in the morning cut across the country to that part of the river which we had first hit upon yesterday, and thence to trace upward or to the left. But before okay, so I descend... I always get so lost with these accounts. So basically they've, they've walked, they've started walking like towards the ocean or vaguely like up uh, downstream with the flow of the river, thinking that they're getting towards Richmond Hill. And then they finally climbed up a big hill and realized like, oh, hang on, we're going the wrong way. Like it's actually upstream of where we started. So now they're retracing yep. all their steps. Yes. Okay. So they... They, they they reached onto the river where it was 350 feet wide around Windsor. Mm-hmm. And then they've proceeded north upstream, or sorry, north downstream from there. And they've got yep. to a creek that's called Cadai Creek, quite wide. Um, okay. They've gone up Cadai Creek and that goes into the sandstone country of the Hawkesbury. Um, yes. So uh, around Glenorie. And so they've gone, scrambled up this mountain. Oh my God, it's desolate. And then they've looked down and gone, oh, that's where we're supposed to be. Um, and it is fairly foreboding country and it's the sort of country that you don't typically go walking you know it's not cultivated now because it's not practical to cultivate it (laughs) right right because the the around like the nepean and then uh like through richmond and windsor it's all quite flat good land and then it goes the river comes back into mountains to some extent right or at least rocky kind of territory yeah yeah, and that's right. what kind of you look at when you go on the F3 north of Sydney towards Newcastle or yeah. vaguely or it, that area. A lot further west from there, but similar sort of terrain. Or even around like Wiseman's Ferry kind of area. Is that kind of still yep. that's similar? Yep. Like, yeah, not not flat alluvial plains that you can have farms on kind of. You're narrowly- no, and for someone who's used to strolling around the Cumberland Plain, yeah. an absolute nightmare. <laughs> Uh, and he, and then he, he ends, he ends that paragraph here by saying, but before I descend, I must not forget to relate that to this pile of desolation on which, like the fallen angel on the top of Nephites, we stood contemplating our nether Eden. His excellency was pleased to give the name of Tench's Prospect Mount. Oh, does it still have that name? <laughs> uh, couldn't, couldn't find it. So I think No. <laughs> He's lost it. Uh, I'm sure he was happy with himself for a while there. Our fatigue today had been excessive, but our two sable companions seemed rather enlivened than exhausted by it. We had no sooner halted and given them something to eat than they began to play 10,000 tricks and gambles. They imitated the leaping of the kangaroo, sang, danced, poised the spear and met in mock encounter. But their principal source of merriment was again derived from our misfortunes. In tumbling amidst nettles and sliding down precipices, which they mimicked with inimitable drollery. They seem to have really been struggling this this expedition trip. There's a lot of falling over going on. (laughs) They had become, however, very urgent in their inquiries about the time of our return, and we pacified them as well as we could by saying it would be soon, but avoided naming how many days. Classic trick. Never works. The classic. Soon, soon. <laughs> Their method of testifying dislike to any place is singular. They point to the spot they are upon and all around it, crying, 
Wari, bad, and immediately after mention the name of any other place to which they are attached, Rose Hill or Sydney, for instance, adding to it, budgery, budgery, good. Nor was their preference in the present case the result of caprice, for they assigned very substantial reasons for such predilections. At Rose Hill, said they, are potatoes, cabbages, pumpkins, turnips, fish and wine. Here are nothing but rocks and water. These comparisons constantly ended with the question of, where's Rose Hill, where? On which they would throw up their hands and utter a sound to denote distance, which it is impossible to convey an idea of upon paper. They were keen to finish this uh, trip with these stumbling uh, explorers. Yeah, what I find so interesting about this passage is that, I mean, attention to his credit is just quoting what what happened. He's not kind of giving too much commentary about it, but it seems like he's taking it very much at face value. And like, and maybe I'm wrong here, but it seems to me fairly obvious that they don't want to go back to Rose Hill for the cabbages and turnips. They're just trying to relate it to the desires of, of the, the people party. they're talking to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, it's so strange. They just say, oh, this place is bad and that place is good. And it's like, yeah, yeah, you've probably had like very limited amount of common language and they're relating right. a concept in a way that they think makes sense to you. Maybe not correctly, but, right. you know, obviously there's so much nuance there that he doesn't really seem to be too interested in delving into. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's I, it's impossible. Like, it's very, very hard to know what's going on in all of these encounters, especially when we only have, like, such few words about it. And I feel like, like you know, us two speculating is also like, I don't know, we don't know. But, yeah, it's, it's almost like he took it as a, oh, look, the, like they've only been living with us for like a few years and they already see like how wonderful it is to have uh turnips and blah blah yes but instead it's like well maybe they just want to go home to their like wife and family and like people that they know and love and they're like hey don't you want to go to the turnips and like the nice potato (laughs) things that you seem to like so much can we go back there (laughs) you love that stuff you don't like it here (laughs) (laughs) totally thursday april 14th 1791 We started early and reached the river in about two hours and a half. The intermediate country, except for the last half mile, was a continued bed of stones, which were in some places so thick and close together that they looked like a pavement formed by art. When we got off the stones, we came upon the coarse river sand before mentioned. Here we began to trace upward. We had not proceeded far when we saw several canoes on the river. Our natives made us immediately lie down amongst the reeds while they gave their countrymen the signal of approach. After much calling, finding that they did not come, we continued our progress until it was again interrupted by a creek, over which we threw a tree and passed upon it. And I think that's South Creek, which is Windsor, basically. Mm -hmm. While this was doing, a native from his canoe entered into conversation with us and immediately, after paddled to us with a frankness and confidence which surprised everyone. He was a man of middle age with an open, cheerful countenance, marked with the smallpox and distinguished by a nose of uncommon magnitude and dignity. Someone else I could describe like that. (laughs) (laughs) He seemed to be neither astonished or terrified at our appearance and number. Two stone hatchets and two spears he took from his canoe and presented to the governor, who, in return for his courteous generosity, gave him two of our hatchets and some bread, which was new to him, for he knew not its use but kept looking at it until Colby showed him what to do when he ate it without hesitation. We pursued our course, and to accommodate us, our new acquaintance pointed out a path and walked at the head of us. A canoe, 
also with a man and a boy in it, kept gently paddling up abreast of us. We halted for the night at our usual hour on the bank of the river. Immediately that we had stopped, our friend, who had already told us his name, Gombari, introduced the man and the boy from the canoe to us. The former was Yelamundi, the latter, Dimba. The ease with which these people behaved among strangers was as conspicuous as unexpected. They seated themselves at our fire, partook of our biscuit and pork, drank from our canteens, and heard our guns going off around them without betraying any symptom of fear, distrust, or surprise. On the opposite bank of the river, they had left their wives and several children with whom they frequently discoursed, and we observed that these last manifested neither suspicion or uneasiness of our designs towards their friends. Nice. I really love that passage. I think it's got a sort of quiet beauty about it. You can almost sort of picture it. I also find it terribly sad because he's talking about how trusting they are and how unafraid of their violence and how open-minded they are about what the Europeans are doing there. And of all the places in Australia, aside from Sydney Cove, the Hawkesbury Nepean is the one where that trust ended uh, very quickly um, and, you know, things change very rapidly. So it's it's quite a melancholy kind of moment, I feel like, that little description. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Like the, we haven't come to it yet, but I th- I'm sure we will in this uh, series of episodes that we're going to do. The, um, this area of, it becomes one of the very earliest like thriving agricultural areas, which means the complete dispossession of the indigenous people and, and very violent yeah. conflicts. Um, yeah. So yeah, for sure. You can kind of, it, it is really, really tragic to, and, and moving to see these, like these interactions where it's very disingenuous to say like, Oh, we, we just come in peace and we're just here to show you these interesting things. And like, we're, you know, we're, we're good people who are going to bring you in like, you know, fun trinkets when clearly like that's, that's not what's going to happen. Yeah, you're taking soil out in bags. Yeah. <laughs> There's another agenda yeah. there. Yeah. Um, but I, once again, think we're so lucky that he wrote about this because otherwise these sorts of, like, this is such a such a significant moment in the history of Australia and it could have just washed on by, you know. Yeah, and I mean, I imagine a huge amount of significant moments aren't, aren't recorded in writing. <laughs> yeah. And so, so we don't really have, we don't have any knowledge of them. So he continues, having refreshed ourselves, we found leisure to entertain into conversation with them. It could not be expected that they should differ materially from the tribes with whom we were acquainted. The same manners and pursuits, the same amusements, the same levity and fickleness undoubtedly characterized them. What we were able to learn from them was that they depend but little on fish, as the river yields only mullets, and that their principal support is derived from small animals which they kill, and some roots, a species of wild yam chiefly, which they dig out of the earth. If we rightly understood them, each man possesses two wives. Whence can arise this superabundance of females? Neither of the men had suffered the extraction of a front tooth. We were eager to know whether or not this custom obtained among them, but neither Colby nor Balladery would put the question for us, and on the contrary, showed every desire to waive the subject. The uneasiness with which they testified whenever we renewed it rather served to confirm a suspicion which we had long entertained, that this is a mark of subjection imposed on the tribe of Camaragal, who we are certain, who are certainly the most powerful community in the country, 
on the weaker tribes around them. Whether the women cut off a joint of one of the little fingers, like those on the seacoast, we have no opportunity of observing. These are petty remarks, but one variety struck us more forcibly. Although our natives and the strangers conversed on a par and understood each other perfectly, yet they spoke different dialects of the same language, many of the most common and necessary words used in life bearing no similitude and others being slightly different. Yeah, okay, interesting. This is what I was asking about before. Okay, so mutually comprehensible, uh, so the, the same language broadly, but with uh, slight, slight variations. Yeah, and what's also interesting here is that he's basically said that he thinks the, the people he's encountered, the Darug, are more powerful in a way because they're not subjugated by the Camaragal and hence they don't have the marks of what he presumes the marks of subjugation being the mm-hmm. removed front teeth and a missing finger joint, which were common in the people they'd encountered in Sydney Cove and surrounds. Yeah. But just a few paragraphs ago, he was saying that he assumed that the sea coast people were more powerful and that the Darug had been sentenced to go inland where the going was tougher. Right, and there wasn't all of this abundant fish in, yeah. Yeah, shell, and, so, and he hasn't actually acknowledged that these these observations are at total odds with one another. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, it does, yeah, it does seem like he just, I don't know, almost like a stream of consciousness, like, the, mm. like or maybe it's this, maybe it's this, maybe it's this. Which, I mean, which is kind of good because it makes it seem more of a genuine diary and not something he's bunged together because it's yeah, it doesn't, yeah. That's true. It's true. It doesn't have like an overarching <laughs> thesis, does it, of... of how native culture works it's it's kind of disparate disconnected and mutually exclusive observations yes yes um and then there's a little table of words here that i'll include Uh, i thought you might be interested um from your from your doors episode in season one i'm gonna go ahead and say that my pronunciation is going to be invariably wildly wrong here but i'll have a crack at it anyway as transcribed by tench so the first word I'll say will be the English word. The second word will be the name of the word on the sea coast. So I think we could safely assume it's the Eora or a Gadigal word and the name at the Hawkesbury. So the, the Darug word. Mm-hmm. These might be wrong. It's Tench's opinion. So <laughs> all care, no responsibility. <laughs> it goes down to how much he understood what was going on. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the moon, Yanida, Condon. So the first word is seacoast, second word, Hawkesbury. The ear, mm-hmm. Guri, Bena. The forehead, Nullo, Naran. The belly, Barang, Bindi. The navel, Monero, Boombong. The buttocks, Boom, Bailey. The neck, Kalang, Ganga. The thigh, Tara, Dara. The hair, Dewara, Kawara. Yeah, okay, interesting. A lot of them are quite similar. Some of them seem very, very different. Like they might have just had different roots. Hmm. That these diversities arise from want of intercourse with the people on the coast can hardly be imagined, as the distance inland is but 38 miles, and from Rose Hill not more than 20, where the dialect of the sea coast is spoken. It deserves notice that all the different terms seem to be familiar to both parties, though each in speaking preferred its own. How easily people unused to speaking the same language mistake each other, everyone knows. We had lived almost three years at Port Jackson, for more than half of which period natives had resided with us, before we knew that the word bial 
signified no and not good, in which latter sense we had always used it without suspecting that we were wrong and even without being corrected by those with whom we talked daily. That's the most telling misunderstanding and most late I know, concerning thing to not understand that you could ever. <laughs> I thought the no meant good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's this desire, which I can completely relate to, to just be like, oh, foreign language. Well, it must just directly translate from our language yeah, <laughs> and not have any different concepts or cultural context. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he says the cause of our error was this The epithet Weri signifying bad We knew And as the use of this word and its opposite Afford the most simple form of denoting Consent or disapprobation To uninstructed Indians In order to find out their word for good When Arabanu was first Brought amongst us we used jokingly To say that anything Which he liked was Weri in order to provoke him to tell us it was good. When we said, worry, so bad, he answered, bial, which we translated no. and adopted for good. <laughs> Where, like, no, you idiots. <laughs> yeah. Whereas he meant no more than simply to deny our inference and say, no, it is not bad. After this, it cannot be thought extraordinary that the little vocabulary inserted in Mr. Cook's account of this part of the world should appear defective, even were we not to take in the great probability of the dialects at Endeavour River and Van Diemen's Land differing from that spoken at Port Jackson. Yeah, yeah, I think we mentioned this briefly in the episode about the doors. Like the, I think that a Cook's account he like picked up words from places as far away as like North, what's now North Queensland, Tasmania, and like you know Central New South Wales, and he he just like compiled them together as like getting yeah. more and more vocab. And he's like, look, I've got I've got these words down. These are all the ones that I learned, yeah. but they would have been so unrelated to each other. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and I just I just love the image of these indigenous people like that have been, you know, either kidnapped or manipulated in some way or you know, even maybe living in Sydney over their own free will, but being spoken to in nonsense version of their language and just like kind of ignoring it. <laughs> He's like they never tried to correct us. <laughs> like- <laughs> yeah, I guess you your your language you have to be proficient to a certain extent before anyone's going to bother even trying to like instruct you further you know yeah. if you if it's just complete nonsense to start with everyone's like, mm-hmm. yep. yeah and it remains to be proved that the animal called here patagram is not there called kangaroo hmm. stretched out at ease before our fires all sides continued to chat and entertain each other gombery showed us the mark of a wound which he had received in his side from a spear it was large, appeared to have passed to a considerable depth, and must certainly have been attended with imminent danger. By whom it had been inflicted and on what occasion, he explained to Colby, and afterwards, as we understood, he entered into a detail of the wars and, as effects lead to causes, probably of the gallantries of the, dis- the district, for the word which signifies a woman was often repeated. Colby, in return for his communication, informed him who we were, of our numbers at Sydney and Rose Hill, of the stores we possessed, and above all of the good things which were to be found amongst us, enumerating potatoes, cabbages, turnips, pumpkins, and many other names which were perfectly unintelligible to the person who heard them, but which he nevertheless listened to with profound attention. 
feel like that display might have been a bit performative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Perhaps the relation given by Gombari of the cure of his wound now gave rise to the following superstitious ceremony. While they were talking, Colby turned suddenly round and asked for some water. I gave him a cupful, which he presented with great seriousness to Yellow Mundy, as I supposed to drink. This last indeed took the cup and filled his mouth with water, but instead of swallowing it, threw his head into Colby's bosom, spit the water upon him, and immediately after began to suck strongly at his breast just below the nipple. I concluded that the man was sick and called to the governor to observe the strange place where he had chosen to exonerate his stomach. The silent attention observed by the other natives, however, soon convinced us that something more than merely the accommodation of Yellow Mundi was intended. The ceremony was again performed, and after having sucked the part for a considerable time, the operator pretended to receive something in his mouth, which was drawn from the breast. With this, he retired a few paces, put his hand to his lips, and threw into the river a stone, which I had observed him to pick up slyly and secrete. When he returned to the fireside, Colby assured us that he had received signal benefit from the operation, and that this second Machan had extracted from his breast two splinters of a spear by which he had been formerly wounded. We examined the part, but it was smooth and whole, so that to the force of imagination alone must be imputed both the wound and its cure. Colby himself seemed nevertheless firmly persuaded that he had received relief, and assured us that Yellow Mundi was a Karadi, or Doctor of Renown. And Baladari added that not only he, but all the rest of his tribe were Karadi, of a special note and skill. The doctors remained with us all night, sleeping before the fire in the fullness of good faith and security. The little boy slept in his father's arms, and we observed that whenever the man was inclined to shift his position, he first put over the child with great care and then turned round to him. Yeah, interesting. I mean, that's very hard to know what to, what was going on there, uh, Yeah, to make out how they understood that interaction um, compared to the description of it. Friday, April 15th, 1791. The return of light aroused us to the repetition of toil. Our friends breakfasted with us, and previous to starting, Gombari gave a specimen of their manner of climbing trees in quest of animals. He asked for a hatchet, and one of ours was offered to him, but he preferred one of their own making. With this tool, he cut a small notch in the tree he intended to climb, about two feet and a half above the ground, in which he fixed the great toe of his left foot and sprung upwards at the same time embracing the tree with his left arm. In an instant, he had cut a second notch for his right toe on the other side of the tree into which he sprung, and thus, alternately cutting on each side, he mounted to the height of 20 feet in nearly as short a space as if he had ascended by a ladder, although the bark of the tree was quite smooth and slippery and the trunk four feet in diameter and perfectly straight. To us, it was a matter of astonishment, but to him it was sport, for while employed thus, he kept talking to those below and laughing immoderately. He descended with as much ease and agility as he had raised himself. Even our natives allowed that he was a capital performer against whom they dared not to enter the lists. For as they subsist chiefly by fishing, they are less expert at climbing on the coast than those who daily practice it.
Yeah, fascinating. That's really impressive. Hey. Yeah, it's so it's so to be cool. Able to climb and up a huge tree. Yeah, that's smooth. You can just picture this huge eucalypt with smooth bark. And yeah. He's just gunning up at cutting a toe holds. Toe holds. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very impressive. <laughs> yeah. Soon after, they bade us adieu in unabated friendship and good humor. Colby and Balladery parted from them with a slight nod of the head, the usual salutation of the country. And we shook them by the hand, which they returned lustily. At the time we had started, the tide was flowing up the river, a decisive proof that we were below Richmond Hill. We had continued our march but a short time when we were again stopped by a creek, which baffled all of our endeavours to cross it and seemed to predict that the object of our attainment, though but a few miles distant, would take us yet a considerable time to reach, which threw a damp on our hopes." We traced the creek until four o'clock when we halted for the night. The country on both sides we thought in general unpromising, but it is certainly very superior to that which we had seen on the former creek. In many places it might be cultivated, provided the inundations of the stream can be repelled. Yeah, because they've seen huge floods, right? They've seen the evidence that, that, yeah, the river floods really, really mightily. And it's amazing because we're cultivating it and we haven't figured out how to repel the inundations. (laughs) It's still a problem. It's a source of yeah. some contention. Yeah. <laughs> in passing along, we shot some ducks, which Bladdery refused to swim for when requested, and told us in a surly tone that they swam for what was killed and had the trouble of fetching it ashore only for the white men to eat it. Yeah. This reproof was, I fear, too justly founded. <laughs> for of the few ducks we had been so fortunate as to procure, little had fallen to their share except the offals, and now and then a half-picked bone. True indeed, all the crows and hawks which had been shot were given to them, but they plainly told us that the taste of ducks was more agreeable to their palates, and begged that they might hereafter partake of them. We observed that they were thoroughly sick of the journey and wished heartily for its conclusion. The exclamation of, where's Rose Hill, where, was incessantly repeated with many inquiries about when we should return to it. Yeah. Well, they've been asking for a long time now. It's like, please just go back. I'm sick of this trip. Yeah, and, and go out and fetch that duck. Why? We never get any. <laughs> yeah. yeah, fair point. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I wonder what, what about this crow? No, that's sh- no. Oh, yeah. yeah. I can tell why you're giving it to me. You don't, no one likes it. <laughs> yeah, yeah true. <laughs> yeah. Saturday, April 16th, 1791. <clears throat> It was this morning resolved to abandon our pursuit and to return home, at hearing of which our natives expressed great joy. We started early and reached Rose Hill about three o'clock, just as a boat was about to be sent down to Sydney. Colby and Bladdery would not wait for us until the following morning, but insisted on going down immediately to communicate to Banalon and the rest of their countrymen the novelties they had seen. The country we passed through was, for the most part, very indifferent, according to our universal opinion. It is in generally it is in general badly watered. For eight miles and a half on one line, we did not find a drop of water. And thus ends the April seventeen ninety one expedition to determine if the Hawkesbury and the Pean are the same river. And it seems from what I can gather that they 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 actually just wandered back and forth quite a bit. Uh, around Windsor and they never yes. actually managed to get back up to, to Richmond yeah. Hill, right? No, but they saw it and was like, yeah, that'll and do And they were it. like, yeah, it's up there. 
<laughs> must be the same thing. <laughs> well, it's a classic, but a classic journey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Logging all this stuff, having a terrible time, going nowhere. It's also quite funny because that last post, the last day, is like, okay, we decided to go home. And then we got home that afternoon. It's like, well, you haven't come very far, have you? Yeah, it wasn't very hard for them to get home, was it? No, because once they're just on the planes, they just go. It's when they're yeah. mucking around in these creeks trying to <laughs> yeah, and scramble it, I think about. It speaks to the density of the of the forest by the riverside. Yeah, exactly, as compared to the plane, because they were many many nights right around there, not going very far, and then they just got home in a day. Yes. And now let us return to what contentious 1793 publication, a complete account of the settlement at Port Jackson, which is not only not complete, but is made even less complete by the fact that I am reading out fragments of it. <laughs> only the parts that relate to the, uh, the Hogsbury Nepean River. Yes. Okay. So we just heard all about the landmark trip to the Hawkesbury Nepean to determine with a reasonable degree of certainty that they are in fact the same river of April 1791. And we now move forward to May 1791. Having eluded our last search, Mr. Dawes and myself, accompanied by a sergeant of Marines and a private soldier, determined on another attempt to ascertain whether Richmond Hill lay on the Hawkesbury or Nepean. So probably still a degree of uncertainty going on there. We set out on this expedition on the 24th of May, 1791, and having reached the opposite side of the mouth of the creek, which had in our last journey prevented our progress. So once again, I think we might be somewhere near South Creek or Windsor here. Mm -hmm. We proceeded from there up to Richmond Hill by the riverside, mounted it, slept at its foot, and on the following day penetrated some miles westward or inland of it until we were stopped by a mountainous country, which our scarcity of provisions joined to the terror of a river at our back, whose sudden rising is almost beyond computation, hindered us from exploring. To the elevation which bounded our research, we gave the name of Night Hill, with a K, in honour of the trusty sergeant, who had been the faithful, indefatigable companion of all our travels. Inde indefatigable. <laughs> I think it indefatigable. is. So many hard words. Indefatigable. 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 <laughs> this excursion completely settled the long-contested point about the Hawkesbury and Nepean. We found them to be one river. Yay. Without knowing it, yeah, congratulations, guys. <laughs> Without knowing it, Mr. Dawes and myself had passed Richmond Hill almost a year before, in August 1790, and from there walked on the bank of the river to the spot where my discovery of the Nepean happened in June 1789. Our ignorance arose from having never before seen the hill and from the erroneous position assigned to it by those who had been in the boats up the river. Yeah, man, I'm so confused at this point because it seems like they've just been like plowing the same land over and over again, back and forth, but getting confused. Because didn't, didn't the boat trip that you talked about right at the start get to Richmond Hill? Yeah, oh. so that's why they had Richmond Hill in their mind, but neither of them were on it. So... They were just going off the description, and obviously the boat, the river is so twisty and turny. Yeah, the, the people mapping it hadn't done a very good job, so they were convinced that they hadn't reached Richmond Hill. But yeah, all of this walking takes place between Lapston and 
Cadi Creek just past Windsor, which is like not that far given how right. many trips and how much wandering and how much confusion is taking place. Yeah, speculation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I believe there was a reference earlier to the tidal nature of the river and they were saying that that showed that it was the Hawkesbury. And I believe that still is our definition of the difference between the Hawkesbury and the Nepean is that once it becomes tidal, it's the Hawkesbury. And when it's non-tidal, it's the Nepean. Is that vaguely correct? I'm not sure. So the point where we consider them to combine is where the Gross River comes in, which is at a place called Yaramundi, which is Yellowmundi, Yaramundi, same guy. So it's named for for him. And it's just upstream of Richmond. So Uh same sort of area. Now, in this area, you've got – that's where the first – the lowest falls on the Hawkesbury Nepean are. So that's – Yaramundi. Yeah. So Mm – we know that it's definitely fresh above there because there cannot be tidal t- tide variation over a falls, a, a mm-hmm. waterfall, small waterfall. Um, and it also is why the boat. That's a stop. It's sort of why I feel confident saying that Richmond Hill is Richmond because they couldn't get upstream past those falls. Yeah. So that's kind of why they had to explore this on foot. Because the obvious thing to do seems to be just go up the river further. Or by boat. Yes, but there are like, multiple falls, uh, I believe, up yes. from Yarramundi. There's quite a few spots where you wouldn't be able to take a boat up there. Yeah. 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 Cool. Uh, and sorry, you were saying, so I, I think I'm getting confused between uh, indigenous names. You were saying Yarramundi was the name of one of the people that they uh, met on one of these walking Yeah, walking Yellow Mundi. Tench calls him Yellow Mundi. Um, he's often called Yarramundi. Mm-hmm. It seems fairly interchangeable. And he's the guy who sucked the stone out of Colby, the okay. doctor of renown. Okay. Yeah, they, they met on the boat. So, yeah, he he's named, Yaramundi Falls is named for him, which is the point where okay. the Hawkesbury and the Pean meet. Although, yes. as we've discussed, it's sort of a redundancy. And in Darug, the river has a single name, um, Jarabin, which, yeah. Makes, yeah, yeah. which makes more sense, more, I more think. Sense. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, we continue. Except the behaviour of some natives whom we met on the river, which it would be ingratitude to pass in silence, nothing particularly worthy of notice occurred on this expedition. When we had reached within two miles of Richmond Hill, we heard a native call. We directly answered him and conversed across the river for some time. At length, he launched his canoe and crossed to us without distrust or hesitation. We had never seen him before, but he appeared to know our friend Gombery, of whom he often spoke. He said his name was Didora. He presented us with two spears and a throwing stick, and in return we gave him some bread and beef. Finding that our route lay up the river, he offered to accompany us and, getting into his canoe, paddled up abreast of us. When we arrived at Richmond Hill, it became necessary to cross the river, but the question was, how should this be effected? Didora immediately offered his canoe. We accepted of it, and Mr. Dawes and the soldier, putting their clothes into it, pushed it before them, and by alternately wading and swimming, soon passed. On the opposite shore sat several natives to whom Didora called, by which precaution the arrival of the strangers produced no alarm. On the contrary, they received them with every mark of benevolence. Didora, in the meanwhile, sat talking with the sergeant and me. Soon after, another native, Marunga, brought back the canoe, and now came our turn to cross. The sergeant, from a foolish trick, which had been played upon him when he was a boy, was excessively timorous of waters and could not swim. Marunga offered to conduct him, and they got into the canoe together, 
but his fears returning, he jumped out and refused to proceed. I endeavoured to animate him, and Marunga ridiculed his apprehensions, <laughs> making signs of the ease and dispatch with which he would land him. But he resolved to paddle over by himself, which, by dint of good management and keeping his position very steadily, he performed. It, w- it was now become necessary to bring over the canoe a third time for my accommodation, which was instantly done, and I entered it with Diodora. But, like the sergeant, I was so disordered at seeing the water within a hair's breadth of the level of our skiff, which brought to my remembrance a former disaster I had experienced on this river, that I jumped out about knee-deep and determined to swim over, which I effected. My clothes, half our knapsacks and three of our guns yet remained to be transported across. These I recommended to the care of our grim ferryman, who instantaneously loaded their boat with them and delivered them to the opposite bank without damage or diminution. So they're all scared of this very low-lying canoe, right? Because I believe the canoe... It sits below the water. Yeah. Yeah. But then they swim. Yeah, I don't like, quite understand that's that. That's the worst <laughs> that would happen is that you'd fall in and you'd just be and swimming swim anyway. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Meanwhile, taxing his generosity with four trips. <laughs> Unbelievable. During this long trial of their patience and courtesy, in the latter part of which I was entirely in their power, from their having possession of our arms, they had manifested no ungenerous sign of taking advantage of the helplessness and dependence of our situation, no rude curiosity to pry into the packages which which they were entrusted, or no sordid desire to possess the contents of them, although among them were articles exposed to view of which it afterwards appeared they knew the use and longed for the benefit. Let the banks of those rivers, known to song, let him whose travels have lain among polished nations produce me a brighter example of disinterested urbanity than was shown by these denizens of a barbarous clime to a set of destitute wanderers on the side of the Hawkesbury. Yeah, so a little bit of nagging going on there. But in general, he's very, very impressed by this behavior. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Saying that they're very, they're worldly and, and very um, sophisticated and generous. and uh, Right, despite being denizens of a barbarous climb. Yeah, it's like, oh, despite the fact that they're obviously like wretched uh, natives, they actually are very, very polite and have the best manners and hospitality that one could hope for. Yeah. It's the classic neg, isn't it? It's like, oh, they were like they were really nice for an Aboriginal person. It's like, right, that's not a nice thing to say about anyone. Like. <laughs> yeah. On the top of Richmond Hill, we shot a hawk, which fell in a tree. Dedora offered to climb for it, and we lent him a hatchet, the effect of which delighted him so much that he begged for it. As it was required to chop wood for our evening fire, it could not be conveniently spared, but we promised him that if he would visit us the following morning, it should be given to him. Not a murmur was heard, no suspicion of our insincerity, no mention of benefits conferred, no reproach of ingratitude. His good humour and cheerfulness were not clouded for a moment. Punctual to our appointment, he came to us at daylight next morning and the hatchet was given to him, the only token of gratitude and respect in our power to bestow. Neither of these men had lost his front tooth. Interesting that he's interested in the front tooth stuff. Um, that has the hatchet <laughs> things. So you can see, like the hatchet would be a yeah, that would be a very very useful object um, compared to to using a sharpened stone. To suddenly have a metal hatchet would be 
pretty helpful, pretty useful. Yeah. Great item. Yeah, it, that's right. Except for the fact that on the previous expedition, Gombury had insisted on using his stone hatchet to do the tree climbing, speed tree climbing trick. He didn't want to use their hatchet. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know. I remember you mentioning that as well. Yeah. I mean, I guess that seems like that was an activity that required incredible specific piece of equipment yeah and yeah i i I wouldn't want to try it with some other random object either (laughs) now Um, try it with a chainsaw yeah i mean yeah but it's amazing that you could do that tree climbing with a with a stone tool as well it's very yeah i'd love to love to witness that and thus ends tench's journeys across the cumberland plain wonderful I mean, it's nice of you to uh, pick, hand pick them all out, so you don't have to read the whole journal. You just get the parts that are about, uh, yeah, the the exact river in Sydney that we're interested in. Yes, and I appreciate this has been a a fairly uh, long and potentially arduous listen, um, not in our usual format. Rest assured, next fortnight we'll be back in the regular storytelling format. But I did want to begin with this because we're going to be talking about the Hawks Free and Opinion for uh, a couple of episodes and we're going to be touching on some of that really early colonial history and interaction with the Darug people that lived there um, and telling some Darug stories as well that go past that first period. So this is like a really nice base from which to understand those interactions and those stories. And if hearing me tell the story wasn't to your taste, well, you're probably not tuned in now, but you can also find this all on uh, Gutenberg. His journal is published in full. So if you prefer to read, you can do that. Otherwise, the episodes will also be perfectly uh, listenable as standalone content. Gutenberg being a website where you can get uh, free access to <laughs> ebooks uh, that you can read on your Kindle, or I guess the PDFs you can read on your computer or anything like that uh, for anything that's out of copyright, right? Yeah, sorry. Probably, probably should have prefaced that. Thank you. Just assumed everyone must spend as much time on it as we do. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Project Gutenberg. That's a great project. Yeah, great. Thanks for that, Jed. Um, I, yeah, it's been quite a few years since I think and I don't even know if I read all of it but since I read any of Tench's uh, journal so it's good to to go back to it and yeah I, I thoroughly enjoyed it so thanks for thanks for bringing that today you're very welcome it was a fairly easy one to prepare as you can imagine but somewhat trying to uh to to read <laughs> Tench's colorful language as much as I love it, it presents a few tongue twisters yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, thank thanks very much for that, Jed. I think we'll see in my uh, next episode that quite a lot of the themes that you've brought out or issues that you've touched upon will then uh, really run straight into the story that I'm hoping to tell. Uh, so, it's going to tie together really nicely. And I'm, I have no idea what you're going to be talking about after that, but I'm looking forward to the way that the the stories will all uh, weave together. And yeah, I know that a lot of the things you talked about today will uh, end up coming up again. So, it'll be good to have that groundwork laid. Yes, and I'll be constantly making reference to this episode. So if people didn't listen, they'll be like, oh, I'll have to go listen to that one. <laughs> I have to listen <laughs> to Jen reading aloud for <laughs> two hours. Well, uh, so my episode isn't directly about Tench at all. Um, it's got quite a lot to do with a, a small cave that now I believe has is littered with a couple of... Uh, errant pieces of graffiti and is otherwise rather neglected 
quite close to uh, Lapstone Creek and uh, not too far from the entrance to the zigzag uh, hiking trail where one can uh, walk over a magnificent former railway viaduct. So I know that's something right up your alley, Jed. But this, mm. uh, this cave has uh, quite a lot of significance for uh, the history of Australia and uh, Indigenous history. But uh, we'll be exploring that and the area around the Nepean River. I don't know if you've heard anything about that. That's very exciting. I think we'll be able to slip in a few more anecdotes from our pack rafting adventure into that episode by the sounds of it. Yeah. It's a great personal shame of mine. Perhaps I would go so far as to say a great personal failing that I have never walked up along the lapstone zigzag, nor have I caught the heritage train in the Lithgow zigzag. Both things are barely believable to me. I know, huge, hugely important pieces of rail infrastructure They're also in just the Blue the most Mountains. Things I can think of. Yeah, well, my in my defence, the Lithgow Heritage Train was um, closed for years following uh, bushfire, and then they just they were about to, literally about to reopen it, and the bushfire ripped through again. So that's been shut for ages. The Lapston one, I have no no reasonable defense. But when I'm back in Sydney, I'll be dragging we'll, you and your family along for a visit, I'd like I'm to sure. Do it. And we'll get to this cave. Yeah. Uh, potentially, yeah, yeah. I, I, if such access is allowed. I'm not sure if allowed. you're allowed to, but <laughs> <laughs> we can see. Yeah. I, I'm also really keen for the, the, the hike around the Lapston zigzag. The problem is, I'm also just ready to try round two of uh, floating down the river from uh, Emu Plains to Richmond. So it's hard to be that part in that part of the world and not want to give it another go. Hopefully Can a little more successful. Can you just imagine spotting Richmond Hill from the Nepean and oh. absolutely losing it? <laughs> there would be nothing better. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much everyone for listening to this episode hopefully you've enjoyed it it's been a marathon but hopefully worthwhile and we will return with our regular programming in a fortnight for alistair's story from sydney if you're not already following us on social media uh, our long dormant accounts will be reactivated now that season four is kicked off so you can find us on instagram or facebook at stories from sydney you can also get in touch with us via email stories from sydney at gmail.com and download our podcast wherever you get your podcasts thanks for listening see you next time <laughs>